0: Every day, during this great and terrible pause, Cood Street is calling up readers and book lovers from all over the world to ask them what they're reading, what they'd recommend, and what they have coming out in the world. Today, I'm talking to writer, translator, and editor S. Fuyi Lu, who joins me from somewhere on the west coast of North America. Hello, S. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm functional. I'm functional. Are you finding you're able to... (laughs) Just cope with these strange times.
1: Yeah, I mean the you know the apocalyptic ash sky has cleared, so we have blue skies again. <laughs> <laughs> so things have uh, settled down a little bit. I'm not sure what 2020 still has in store, though.
0: Oh, uh, uh, 2020 is always far from done. It would seem, but every at every single turn. But you <laughs> know, <what> I mean, <laughs> let me ask you: Do you find that you're able to to read, to work, to function in these times?
1: Uh, yeah, um, I am one of those people who is extremely type A to begin with. Um, but when I find myself stressed or if I'm not sure what to do, I just really hone in on work and whatever kind of productivity I can find. So um, sometimes it actually works to my detriment in that I get too absorbed and I have to be like pulled away to go outside. But um, overall, it's I've been able to work with writing and reading and, and that's been really positive for me.
0: Excellent. Well, let me ask you, since it's kind of what we're here to talk about, have you been able to read? What are you reading? And most importantly, is it any good?
1: Yeah. So the latest um, novel that I finished reading was Bone Shard Daughter by Andrea Stewart. Um, I have a review of it at tour.com. And it is it was fantastic. You know, I went in really not knowing anything about what the story would be, what the world would be, just kind of, you know, knew i'd seen andrea on twitter around um and then i decided to go into it and it was just incredible the world building the the characters the atmosphere it's um i think it's a really unique piece because um as i mentioned in my review it's it's asian inspired but it's not mm-hmm. a which um you know in secondary world fantasy there's um there's, there's often a pressure for Asian authors to represent a specific kind of Asia. And in mm-hmm. secondary worlds, you know, you have things like Westeros is not directly any kind of Western country, but, you know, people might look at an Asian fantasy and be like, oh, is this, you know, historical China? And so I, what I really enjoyed about Bone Shard Daughter is that it had all this sensibility and aesthetics of being influenced by different kinds of Asian cultures. But at the same time, it has that same abstract secondary world quality to it, but still a richness. And so, combined with the characters, combined with the magic, it just felt like a very well realized world. And it was, you know, I kept thinking about it, like daydreaming after I finished reading it, which uh, hasn't really happened in a while.
0: (laughs) It is. It is. There's a certain pleasure in sort of being able to immerse yourself. Is is that the kind of thing you look for in reading?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I used to do that a lot in elementary school, middle school, I would just tear through books. But, you know, as I got to high school, college, it became harder to read for fun, just both because of life stuff and because, you know, my attention span wasn't the same. Um, So speaking of which, I completely forgot your question. (laughs) <laughs> um, oh yes, immersive reading. Okay, yes. <laughs> I lose my train of thought sometimes. Um, yeah, so these days when I read a book, I find I often have to chunk it up into little sections and milestones, and encourage myself to keep going. But with Bone Shard Daughter, I was just flipping through the pages. You know, I just did not want the book to end.
0: Sounds fabulous. Let me ask you this: Are you have you been reading anything else, or has it been mostly fantasy at the moment?
1: Um, yeah. So I've actually been trying to read more um, speculative fiction in Chinese as well, since I translate from Chinese. Um, yeah. I actually usually get um, work. Uh, I actually usually get work sent to me um, based on a commission um, type model. You know, people have work that they want to get translated, and they'll contract me to do it. So I haven't really had as much of a chance to just browse and explore what kind of work is out there in Chinese. So mm-hmm. um, luckily I was able to go to a local Chinese language bookstore and they had a couple of uh, sci-fi releases. So um, that's what I'm kind of poking at. I read very slowly in Chinese <laughs> and it's a, bit, it's a bit different with print because I usually do stuff digitally and it's a lot faster to look things up. Um, but with print, you know, I have to like pause and I have to do the handwriting dictionary because it's completely different writing system. Um, but it's um it's interesting to see what like Taiwanese speculative fiction, what mainland mm-hmm. Chinese speculative fiction is doing.
0: Do you find that uh, editing and working on fiction in translation comes back and has an impact on your own work, on your own writing?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um. I think I've become a lot more aware of. The details of craft. Since I started translating, I think I've always been kind of sensitive to, to you know, the line level things about craft. Um, I've always loved poetry, but when it comes to translation, um, there has to really be a understanding of that line level detail in the target language, and that's what mm-hmm. people don't quite understand. People think, oh, you just need to know the original language well, and you'll do good. But actually, you need to know the target language really well. And you could, you know, have be a little patchy with the original, you have the dictionary to supplement, but if you can't capture the 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 essence in English, then the translation comes off clunky. So I'm very aware now of like what what words I choose and um what kind of what all those little decisions that come together to create voice because these different authors I'm translating, they all have very different both voices and styles. And um, luckily for me, I love experimenting with different different kinds of voices. So it's been interesting following my intuition to um, bring that specific voice um, through in the translation, which in turn I think has made my own work um, more able to channel different voices, different perspectives. And um, on a prose level, I noticed that I'm breaking more rules, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> like, um, like in, you know, in English speculative fiction, you're kind of expected to tell, to tell a story in, um, in a linear manner when it comes to time. Oh, one sec. Um, yeah. So in a, in a linear way when it comes to time, but Chinese storytelling isn't quite the same. You'll have people going through, um you know, something they'll be walking down the street and then they'll meander to a memory from five years ago and then think about what might happen in the next moment. And it's, it's all very wibbly wobbly. So, um, I've kind of started to take that into my English fiction and I think it's worked, um, because as dark as hunger, which, um, Ellen Datlow picked, picked up for a best horror and which you also, um, have read it. Um, it does meander in multiple layers to different histories, different characters' um, thoughts and perspectives. So that's something that I think has come from the influence from Chinese speculative fiction.
0: Do you find that there is a real, I mean, a, re- a real interest now in hearing, you know, d- diverse voices—the kind of voices that it takes translation to bring into the, you know, the, the, the English market?
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I I think what's just really fascinating is the difference between the English market and literally every other language.
0: (laughs) Because, you know,
1: you you go into a bookstore in a country where English is not the primary language and you'll see tons of books in the native language, but they're all translated from English, like in the science fiction section usually. Um, I mean, that's in part because science fiction is itself a very – it's it's a Western concept in many ways because it came mm-hmm. from a Western you know cultural and historical moment. Um, so that's that's part of it. And I think now we're starting to see enough um, cultural and and um, exchange of ideas that people are aware it's not just it's it's a mode of storytelling, not a specific type of story. And um, I think people are now more interested in just seeing the different ways people tell those stories. Um, I think our tastes shift over time. Um, I, I noticed that very clearly with the Bill and Ted movie. The third uh, mm-hmm. the third one came out recently um, mm-hmm. after a significant um, gap between the first two. Um, and it's interesting to see how the movie um, – is tailored for the sensibilities of the 2020 audience. <laughs> really? A lot of the jokes that were funny in the 80s um, that are no longer funny now, you know, they they don't recur in the 2021. And the jokes that they're telling are just completely different. You know, people's tastes have have changed with what they want to see in stories and humor, all of that. And I think it's that's just how culture works. It changes.
0: Do you find that as a storyteller, as a writer, you're more drawn to science fiction, fantasy, horror, or some particular sp- part of speculative fiction?
1: Yeah. Um, I think what really interests me about speculative fiction is the speculative element. So, really mm-hmm. going down that rabbit hole. Um, it doesn't have to be a secondary world with its own, you know, um, completely built from scratch system either it can be like you know just alternate history where there's one point of divergence but the author really really goes deep and considers the consequences the and and how things might be might change and i think that's um you know science fiction has always had this use as a tool as a pioneering tool for helping us mm-hmm. create visions of the future and technology you know if more fundamentally like things like cell phones um, being influenced from seeing, you know, Star Trek. And um, in China, the, the science fiction tradition also coming with a science literacy um, push at the same time. So it's it's just really interesting to see people engage concepts in a very deep level while also making it understandable through story. And that's where um, storytelling really um, excels as compared to, you know, just other kinds of... Um, Um, writing about science and science fiction.
0: Well, I mean, I first encountered uh, your work through your story in Asimov's Mother Tongues uh, a couple of years ago. And so, I've been interested in how typical that is of your work. Uh, I guess what what I'm interested in asking now is what else do you have coming out in the world? What's happening with you in terms of fiction?
1: Yeah. So, um, Mother Tongues, I think – it's become more and more difficult to say what's typical of my work (laughs) Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. as I have more workout, as I experiment more, there's um, to me less of a trend of what kind of story I write. Like there's certain themes and topics that recur, like the ideas of, you know, culture, diaspora, what you lose when you assimilate. That's definitely a recurring theme through my work. Um, But the sort of um soft sci-fi of like a a kind of slice of life more quiet story um it it stands out more as one of um one of the more um I guess literary types of science fiction that I have um but I do have my um novella which will be coming out from tor.com and that one is my you know wild experiment baby that I was like you know what I'm just gonna Write the weird story I want to write, <laughs> and and it's no. the um, yeah, and it's the the first. I think my first real deep dive into a secondary world. I've tried constructing a few here and there, but this one is the first one that's uh, cohered into something that seems like um like like its own lived-in planet.
0: So if you're going to do, and this is always an evil thing that I'm about to do to any writer, so I I <laughs> almost apologize up front. Mm-hmm. If you're going to give the elevator pitch for In the Watchful City, which is the novella you have coming out from Tor.com, and which, when this conversation goes out, should hopefully have been announced to the world, what would the elevator pitch be?
1: So um, the comp titles are Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino and Clover by Clamp, which are two entirely different, you know, uh, traditions, mm-hmm. and then the basic story is you have a human who is working as an artificial intelligence for a city that strongly surveils its people, and um and a meets a person with a um, cabinet of curiosities who basically says, "Hey, there's more of the world out there. Are you sure this is what you want to be doing?" And um and so it's it's just a, a story about you know questioning your role and identity in society and the status quo.
0: And that will be out in the world in the second half, I think, of next year. There's a lot sort of to go on between now and then. But for the moment, I would like to thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. I genuinely appreciate it.
1: Yes, thank you for having me.